We've been moving through the book of Exodus over the past several months. We come this morning to Exodus chapter 21. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 32. Our complementary passage will be 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 3 through 12. The reason that I'm choosing 1 Corinthians 9 is because Paul lays out a principle for how we are to use the scriptures, uh, particularly the law. Uh, and so if you would open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and in honor of God's word, please stand. First <clears throat> Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 3, hear God's word. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? As far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Exodus chapter 21, beginning in verse 1 and continuing in the reading of God's Word. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food or clothing or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing, without payment of money. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. 
When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge determined. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, Wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been warned has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned, but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it goes, if it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. As far as the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, as we come to this word, this law of yours, the precepts, would you help us to understand the principles? Would you help us to know our Savior? And would you help us to live accordingly? In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So when we begin looking at this section that really begins in Exodus chapter 18, we noted that the events that take place at Mount Sinai begin in Exodus chapter 18 and go all the way through to Numbers chapter 9. Now, you might be internally groaning. Or for that matter, you might be thinking, hey, this is a great opportunity to start visiting some other church. Because a full solid six or seven months of this might sound like Chinese water torture. But it's interesting, just think for a moment, that for the original audience, all of the exciting stuff, that has come already, the, the, the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea and the, the, the thunder at Mount Sinai, all of that has been building up to this. So at this point is when they lean forward eagerly. It's at this point, Exodus chapter 21, that they start saying, okay, now we're getting to the good stuff. How does the law of God apply? Particularly this second table of the law. Jesus sums up the second table as, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
And that's a great principle, but what does that look like? Give me some examples. Give me some things to grab hold of. Because if I just say to my neighbor, go in peace, be warmed and filled, when I have the means to alleviate my neighbor's poverty, James tells me, how can I say the love of Christ even dwells in me? And so give me some practical examples, give me some practical pointers. So the Israelites would see this as great Now we're getting to the good stuff. And I think it's odd that we tend to go, oh no, now we're getting to the boring stuff. (laughs) The great stuff, the good stuff, was the plagues and the the parting of the Red Sea and, and the thunder and the lightning and the smoking on Mount Sinai. And now it's just like, oh no, please. Law after law after law after law after law. So... Let's back up a bit. Acknowledge, acknowledge that understandable first reaction. But let's back up just a little bit. Our confession says that the law is understood in three different categories. We have the moral law, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments, and is that universal law of God written on the heart of man, binding upon all men in all ages. The moral law, you shall not kill. It doesn't matter what country you're from. It doesn't matter what your economic situation is. You shall not kill. This is binding on all. It also doesn't matter what your religion is. You still shall not kill. The moral law is binding on all men at all times. The ceremonial law, and we'll be getting into the ceremonial law in the coming chapters. The ceremonial law is all this stuff about sacrifices. A bull, or a goat, or a sheep, or a turtle dove, or you know what the tabernacle should look like. All of these details of the ceremonies around worshiping God rightly. All of these have been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ is the great sacrifice. Jesus Christ is the tabernacle. The church is the temple of God. All of these ceremonies point us to the work of Jesus Christ fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and then become ways in which we can better understand who Christ is in his work. First two categories, moral and ceremonial. The third category is the judicial, the laws for society. And that's what we obviously are getting into here, the laws for society. And our confession says that these laws expired together with the nation-state of Israel. So when Israel was no longer a nation-state in AD 70, the judicial laws expired and are no longer binding except as the general equity thereof. So that's where we all get into our debates. What is the general equity of these things? 
What are the general principles of fairness? What are the general principles that God would have us draw out of his laws for how Israel is to exist as a state, as a nation? And so in this chapter, we're going to see two large categories. The first is the laws regarding slaves in verses 1 through 11. The laws regarding slaves. And the second is laws regarding conflicts between people in verses 12 to 32. So slaves, verses 1 through 11, and conflicts, verses 12 to 32. And my desire is to treat the text openly, to treat the text honestly, and to follow the confession in saying, here are some general equity principles that come out of this. Now, again, I mentioned the reason that I read 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is because this idea of general equity follows what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 9. So did you notice when Paul says... I have a right to take a salary. I'm bringing you the word, and I have the right to take money for the work that I'm doing amongst you. Paul uses the example of the Old Testament law that you shall not muzzle the ox that treads out the grain. This is one of the judicial laws that we'll be coming across. He uses that law, and he says, come on, do you think God really is focused on ox? Oxen, he says, he's giving us a principle. He's saying that the person who does the work should benefit from that work that he does. That's the principle of you shall not muzzle the ox that treads out the grain. And so this is an inspired, we call it hermeneutic, a way of interpretation, a way of understanding how God's word applies, that Paul brings to one of the judicial laws. And so I want to follow that pattern and look at the issue first of slavery and then the issue of conflicts. Now, I love how (laughs) there's nothing possibly controversial about this, is there? (laughs) We're going to talk about slavery today. And we're going to talk about the Israelites owning slaves. And there's no way anybody would ever be offended about this sermon at all or this topic. Nobody's got any strong feelings on this. Everybody's approaching this with a wide open mind and going, hmm, please, I have no preformed opinions. Please tell me what to think on this issue of slavery. And you have a bridge over the Golden Gate, whatever, to sell me, I'm sure. Here's here's what I want us to consider. I mean, God gets right into it right into the very first judicial laws, are laws regarding slavery. Now, commentators are all over the place on this. Does this mean that God endorses the system of slavery? Are we going to parse out, well, this is clearly economic slavery. This is non-racial slavery. This is not chattel slavery. This is not multi-generational slavery. We still, we, we clearly have the, the, the principle here of 
when a person comes in as a slave, they shall serve six years. In the year of Jubilee, they will go free. So, so clearly, the idea of slavery is not the slavery that we know of. It's not the Uncle Tom's cabin uh, kind of stuff. It's not the Underground Railroad uh, kind of stuff. This is a different economic system and all of that. Which I think those those points are legitimate points, but I just want to leave it with the kind of bracing. God deals with slavery. He doesn't condemn it. He doesn't, and, and not just in the Old Testament. I mean, Paul, in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 6, says, slaves, be obedient to your masters. It, it's not a system that God comes in and says, hey, this whole slavery is immoral. One human being cannot own another human being. This is an immoral system. Now, please hear me, especially you people on the Internet so you don't firebomb me. I'm not saying we need to go back into slavery. <laughs> I'm very glad that, that we do not have that system in place any longer. Here's the point. I want you to get it. I want you to get this point absolutely clearly. God is completely practical. He enters into the world as the world exists. There is no idealism. God enters into the world as it exists. And the fact is, human slavery has existed as long as humanity has been around. And if you think that in the year 2022, there is no such thing as human slavery, you, my friend, are an idiot. You are a willful idiot. You are determined to be blind to the fact that there is most certainly involuntary slavery There are open-air slave markets that continue to take place today. Now, God recognizes this system, this brokenness, and says, how does a Christian live accordingly? And that's the principle that I want you to take away from this. This is a system that has always existed. And I'm very thankful it's not legal in the United States. But if we look at it, and and I'm not apologizing for it at all. I'm glad it doesn't exist. But beloved, any of you who've got credit card debts, (laughs) that's what this slavery was. This is somebody who's gotten themselves into debt and can't pay the debt. And so they go to the person that they own the debt to, and they say, listen, I can't pay you. And so the person says, all right, I'm going to own your labor. And in owning their labor, he's also responsible to, to feed and house them and all of that. And he can own their labor for up to six years. And at the end of that six year period, that person is going to go free. It's an economic system. I think it, probably is the basis for our own bankruptcy laws. Uh, Bankruptcy is supposedly cleared completely off your report after seven years. 
and and this is probably a, a carryover, at least from the Christian worldview of the people who are coming up with these things. But but the point is that God sees the world as it truly is, broken as well as full of conflict. And he enters into that world, and he gives you and me the tools, the principles by which you and I can walk faithfully in this world. So some things I want to point out just quickly about slavery as it is given here in Exodus chapter 21. And that first principle is that this slavery, if you will read this passage, is economic slavery. It's not racial, and it's not multi-generational slavery. It Very clearly, after six years, the slave goes free. It's, it's not a multi-generational slavery, and it is an economic hardship, an economic reality that has gotten this person into it. And before, especially people with balances on their credit cards want to wave their flags about how horrible the Bible is because it doesn't condemn slavery, I think you ought to pay off your credit card debt first before you start virtue signaling on this one. Uh, Because other people absolutely own you and own the product of your labor. (laughs) Other people absolutely tell you what to do. Uh, Bank of America absolutely will tell you, no, you cannot go on a vacation this year. You've maxed out your credit card. Uh, No, you can't hide all of your excess cash in a foreign bank account. You owe us money. Uh, They will absolutely get in and control your life. It's an economic reality. But one of the the good things about what we see here about slavery in, in Exodus chapter 21, one of the good things that we see about Israelite slavery in particular is that you'll notice that Israelite slavery recognizes the humanity of the slave. So, If a man strikes another man so that he dies, that man's life is forfeit. If a man strikes a slave so that he dies, that man's life is forfeit. There's no sense of one is of greater value before the Lord than another. And, And later on, God will say, remember, you yourselves were slaves. This is supposed to be Israel's identity, that as people who themselves suffered oppression they are not now going to be the instruments of oppression. They are not now especially going to oppress their fellow man. And so the prohibition against selling a slave into a foreign household, this is, this is within the family. This is how the family works. This is how the nation works. The family of God works together. It recognizes the humanity and the worth of the slave. Particularly in verse 20, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. There's not to be two different laws. There's not a law for the freeman and a law for the slave. there's, there's There's a uniformity 
that men and women are created in God's image and men and women have value and the economic status of them no way touches on their value at all. So, so as we look at this issue of slavery and, and the economics, uh, or, or the, the, the principles rather, the principles that, that we can pull out of this, we see that God is looking at all as of value, looking at all as people having worth. And that was countercultural. That was very countercultural. And you just think of Egypt. Uh, people, people were allowed to kill other people in Egypt that were slaves without any repercussions. Uh, the, the nations around Israel were known for their brutality. And so Israel is called to handle this issue differently from those around them. Not to look to their society, their culture, as their guide. But then let's secondly look at the conflicts that begin in verse 12 and run through verse 32. And I cut it at verse 32 because the conflicts between 12 and 32 generally have to do with capital punishment. What are capital crimes? But you'll notice it's not simply if you kill somebody, you'll be killed. There's a distinction between premeditation Verse 12 and 13. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies will be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you may take him from my altar that he may die. So there's a distinction between premeditation and impulsive manslaughter. We also have, as we read in our reading of the law this morning in verse 23 and 24, the law of lex talionis, the law of retribution, equivalent retribution. So in other words, if you strike somebody and that person loses his hand, I don't take your life, but there's an expectation that you're going to receive the punishment that the other person got. It's... It's, it's, it, it's proportionate response. And again, it's universal. There is not to be one law for the wealthy and one law for the poor, one standard for one and another, uh, for the, the slave. It is a universal system all under God's law and all under His oversight. And, If you've been with us a while, you know I'm just preaching straight through the book of Exodus. So I promise this was not timed. There's no way I could have known it. Uh, But I think verse 22 is very, very relevant (laughs) for us today because it addresses the issue of miscarriage and abortion. Uh, Verse 22, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. Then we go on with the lex talionis. Abortion 
and the sanctity of the life of the unborn child is not something that arose after 1975. It's not something that arose in the 1960s. It is the the ability for someone to abort a child has been around as long as medicines have been around. The the test of bitter waters is is one that that seems to be at least in the in the arena of an abortifacient. Uh, but but certainly in Greek culture, this is a common thing. The Hippocratic Oath uh, that doctors were supposed to take uh, following Hippocrates says that as a medical professional, I will not provide abortion. Uh, to other people. So this has been around forever. It's not a modern issue at all. And on these verses, John Calvin quotes, uh, he says, the fetus, though enclosed in the womb of the mother, is already a human being. And it is almost a monstrous crime to rob it of the life it has not yet begun to enjoy. Uh, so, so, if you want to know why Christians get so hung up uh, on pro-life issues and why Christians see this ruling of the Supreme Court as a very positive thing, it is because of this principle that is laid out here that the life of an unborn child has value. And I should be as shocked with slaughtering an unborn child as I should be with you just bebopping through the mall and going boom, boom, boom and shooting people at random just because you feel like it or just because it's inconvenient. Locking a child in a hot car because you want to go inside and smoke crack and the child dies. That's horrible. That's a terrible, terrible thing to do. You don't do that. Uh, and, and in the same way, that love for life, that love for the child, is a, is a love that God enjoins us to. It's a love that God commands here. But you also know that this, notice that this care for human life even extends so far as to the animals. If an ox gores a man so that he dies, the ox will die. But if the ox has been known to be wild and crazy and the owner has been warned and didn't do anything about it, guess what happens to the owner? <laughs> he dies too. <laughs> God takes human life very seriously. Matthew Henry, commenting on this section in particular, says it's not enough simply to prevent our neighbor from falling into harm. You and I have a duty not to allow ourselves to cause harm to another neighbor. So in other words, it's not just passive. If you've got, a, if you got a, a ravening, slavering, pit bull, crazy dog, it's not enough for you just to say, hey, I didn't sick him on the neighborhood kid. You know, sorry, uh, that happened. No, you're responsible for the behavior of your animal. <laughs> and God says so much so that if your animal kills another human being, and you knew that your animal was wild and crazy, you too are going to die. There's a responsibility that you and I have towards our neighbor. It's not simply a passive do no harm, but it's an active 
you are to care and preserve the good of your neighbor. So to wrap up, to wrap up this section, economic imbalance and conflicts are a reality of human life. Sorry, that's how it is. It will always be that way. You think some perfect political system is going to get rid of economic imbalance? Won't happen. Comes from the words of our Savior himself, the poor you will always have with you. There will always be economic imbalance. And sadly, there will always be conflicts in human relationships. It's it's the world in which we live. But how you and I as Christians engage that economic imbalance, how you and I as Christians engage in a world of conflict, is absolutely guided by the second table of the law. God's law is absolutely your guiding light. It is practical. It steps into the very messiness in which you and I live. And it says, here are principles to navigate through well. And the second point of conclusion or point of application that I want to bring to you, the second is this. Beginning here and moving on through the next several chapters, every single aspect of your life is controlled, it's governed by the principles of God's Word. There's nothing that is irrelevant in His Word. There's nothing in your life. Did God anticipate, or does the Bible anticipate, the rise of smartphones? No, it doesn't. Are there principles that go according to smartphones? Yeah, there are. Does God, let me just give you a very quick example here. Does God... Does God anticipate the specific social context in which you and I live today, in which your group of counselors in your life are social media groups that exist to affirm you? Now, if you, if you spend any time on social media or if you spend any time studying, social media, you'll know that this is at the heart of the problem, the challenge of social media in today's world. That my decisions, my wisdom decisions, my ethical decisions are based upon the number of likes that I get. My feed has to be constantly affirming me. I mean, if I came out and said, I identify as someone who likes to chop squirrels up 
and snack on their still throbbing hearts, presumably I could find 18 people that would go, you be you. Great, you live your truth. And I'd be going, yay, see? It's okay for me to chop squirrels up and eat their still beating hearts. Because I can find people in my social media feed that will affirm me, no matter what the ridiculous choices are, or the self-harming choices are that I choose to make. Notice here, not just in verse 15, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death, but verse 17, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. This is a different worldview. This is a different way of understanding the world. Beloved, you cannot be at peace and just unquestioningly embracing the mentality that you and I have grown up in, that you and I live in. We must constantly be checking it. We must constantly be checking it. And for time's sake, I'm not going to to, to draw the clear line between verses 15 and 17 in social media. I will just say, one has a respect for authority and an expectation that you are to honor your mother and your father, and this expectation is given to adults. It's given to adults that they are to honor their mother and father. And, on the other hand, an expectation that mom and dad are useless at best, they, 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 they oppress you at worst, and your counselors are those who affirm you in all of your choices. They are your peers. Uh, this is two different ways of understanding the world. And frankly, one will bring death, and the other will bring life. So as we walk away from this, I want you to walk away with those two principles in front of you. That everything, everything in your life is guided by this second table of the law. It's all of your life. Everything that you and I live and do is to be to the glory of God. Now, the fact of the matter is you can't. The fact of the matter is you fail. And that's where we come back to the uses of the law. The use of the law shows me that I'm to treat everybody with dignity and worth. And I don't. I don't. I like to mock, especially people that are stupid. (laughs) I like to mock. That's not what we see here. We see dignity and worth. We see respect for human life. I like to say, well, you know, this little thing over here I can keep to myself. God God can have 99% of my life But this little thing is mine. And God says, nope. Everything. There is not one inch that I do not claim lordship over. And so as you look, you begin to see that we don't do it. And so we look to Christ. Christ who has kept that law perfectly. Christ who is the one who came to set captives free. Christ the one who came to redeem slaves to sin 
and make us slaves to righteousness. Christ, the one who sees value equally, Jew and Gentile, male and female. Christ, who is our perfect model, and Christ, who is our perfect Redeemer. So, beloved, look first to Him, and then look to walking in wisdom, in passion for holiness, in every area of your life. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, which is clear, it's beautiful, it's challenging and convicting, but Lord, it shows us our Savior, even as it shows us our sin. It shows us the one who became sin for us, that we might be your sons and daughters. Help us, Father, to see our Savior and to pursue righteousness and conformity to him. In Christ's name, amen.